There is no health without mental health. Greetings and welcome to Beyond Madness from me, your host, Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. I'm a psychiatrist and this podcast series is dedicated to the discipline of psychiatry, discussing issues that, whilst emanating directly from the discipline, have implications for society generally. The series engages thought leaders from within the discipline and beyond to assist in exploring these issues and providing insights into some of the thinking that contributes to the richness of psychiatry. Beyond Madness is proudly brought to you by Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave. Loss is never easy. The loss of a loved one, a friend, colleague, whether the loss is directly personal or not, it generally gives pause to reflect for thought about that person, their life, and of course, our own mortality. What if the loss was a decision taken by the person in question to end their own life with their own hand? Suicide. Every one of these deaths leaves an estimated six or more suicide survivors. People have lost someone they care about deeply and are left with their grief and struggle to understand why it happened. Our topic today is the trauma of loss, suicide. What about the survivors? And joining me to discuss the topic, I have the pleasure of welcoming Professor Mark Goldblatt and Mariska Nell. Now, Mark is a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst in Cambridge, Massachusetts, United States of America. He received his medical degree from the University of the Witwatersrand, and he is an associate clinical professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, as well as a clinical associate at McLean Hospital in Boston. He's a founding member of the Boston Suicide Group, and he has a long-standing interest in suicide and psychoanalysis. Mariska is a counselor at the Compassionate Friends here in Johannesburg, and she facilitates a group for family who have lost loved ones to suicide. Mark, Mariska, welcome. Um, Thank you. Just to make a few further comments. I mean, in, in psychiatry, suicide is our mortality. And as psychiatrists, we are acutely sensitive to the possibility of suicide in association with a wide range of psychiatric conditions, risk. But as much as we as a discipline, together with other mental health professionals, are attuned to the possibility, our ability to accurately predict and prevent remains somewhat elusive. In my introduction, I, I mentioned loved ones, friends, colleagues, and of course one must not forget treating professionals, but I'll leave that question for the moment. Mark, I want to turn to you uh, firstly and, 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 a, and a direct question. Before we explore the impact on those left behind, in your experience, um, what drives a person to, to, to suicide, would you say? Well, Christopher, thank you, first of all, for inviting me. It's a great pleasure to be here and to talk with you and Mariska about such a painful topic and uh, thought-provoking. And you're asking the right question. Why do people hurt themselves or go on to kill themselves? And the truth is we don't really know, and it's probably multi-determined. But in my experience, what uh, the commonality that people have is unbearable, internal, subjective, psychic pain. Right. People just feel an internal sense of pain that is overwhelming and that they don't know how to manage. And that becomes too much usually. And instead of trying to find ways or they run out of ways to deal with it, and some of those ways might get them into further self-destructive problems. But there, there are other issues to contend with. But mostly, I would say people suffer from unbearable psychic pain. Right. 
So I think that that seems to me to be a final common pathway because certainly within psychiatry um, there are various risk factors. So if one were to look at, for example, diagnosis, I mean, are there any specific diagnoses or a specific diagnosis that you would see as a uh, risk factor that um, predisposes? The main uh, risk factor in diagnosis is affective disorders. And by affective disorders, we mean depression, major depression, and bipolar disorder. So when you look at studies, and there's been several dozen that look at mortality, and they go back and look at the different uh, people who've died by suicide in a certain town over a few years, and invariably 90 to 95% carry a diagnosis of a psychiatric disorder. Now, this might sound surprising. What about the others? Well, we don't know because this is being done post-mortem. But almost all of them have a psychiatric disorder, about 90% or more. And of those, almost about 65 to 85% have an affective disorder. Almost always it's depression. Sometimes it's bipolar disorder. So bipolar disorder is a kind of emotional disorder where people have a lot of energy and too little energy, and they can resort to suicide both in the too little energy state, which we call depression, and in the too much energy state, which used to be called mania. Right. So would you see bipolar disorder more of a risk factor than depression, or are we are we saying, well, it's, it's, it's difficult to tease out? Because I know certainly uh, in, in what they call psychological autopsies, where they've kind of looked back, depression seems to be the predominant um, diagnosis or some element of, of, of depressive symptomatology. I find depression almost always there. Right. I think in any kind of assessment, you're going to find invariably some form of depression. Bipolar illness is difficult because people seem to have a lot of energy and a lot of confidence. Usually it's false confidence, and you can miss the desperation that goes along with it. But suicidality does occur even in manic states. And I think it's 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 almost like a, a contradiction in terms because there's an assumption that a manic state is a euphoric state, but I think what is often missed is the underlying irritability that is part of that, which we also see in 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 depression and potentially more impulsivity in the manic state. Absolutely, impulsivity and also um, dysphoria. There can be right. a dysphoric manic state. So not not all manic states are euphoric with. Uh, wonderful feelings, but some are irritable and nasty kind of self-judgment. And of course, we also have the sort of subtype of bipolar disorder, which is your rapid cycling bipolar, where you move very quickly between the extremes of of, of mood. Um, and I know we're getting a little bit technical here, but I think it's important just for the purposes of clarification. Would that be a specific group of individuals within the bipolar spectrum of disorders, the, the rapid cycler? Yeah, those ones are difficult to treat. They do respond to lithium. They do respond to interventions, but their suicidality can be masked and difficult to uh, diagnose and then treat. Right. So, I mean, that's from a diagnostic point of view. So, so we accept that the vast majority of individuals who would commit suicide probably have a psychiatric diagnosis. The question is whether it is necessarily assumed that they had a psychiatric diagnosis based on 
going back into their history or in fact that they had an existing psychiatric diagnosis at the time and were potentially even in treatment? Most studies show that people did talk about their psychiatric symptoms and their um, suicidal thoughts to somebody shortly before their final act. Right. Now, um, did that get conveyed to somebody who could intervene? Well, we don't know about that. But most were suffering from symptoms as far as we can tell. And the symptoms are in the present. So, so yeah. So I think that that raises a very important question for me because there's a big distinction between thoughts and intention. And I think the difficulty is in understanding whether the thought represents an intention, even though we as psychiatrists usually ask very directly whether there is in fact intent if we can become aware that the, the patient is indeed experiencing these suicidal thoughts. What would your comment be there? So that's a very interesting question and an important distinction. Some people thinking is a prelude to acting, which is a rehearsal for the final uh, killing of the self. Right. Horrible term, but that's the, the way it goes, the thinking, action, and then uh, the terrible finality. But for some people, thinking about it is actually calming. I had a patient who told me after several months of treatment that, you know, I used to think about myself dying as a way of putting myself to sleep. Right. And that would calm me down. And I don't do that anymore because I'm not suicidal, so now I have difficulty calming myself down for sleep. For some people, it's a, a way of averting action, and some people it's progressing to action, and it's the role of the treater to distinguish which one is it. And that is often very difficult because I think to some extent it's also a function of the extent to which the patient takes you completely into their confidence as opposed to simply gives you a tip of the iceberg. Well, that that's exactly right, and that brings us to what we call the therapeutic alliance. Right. The, one of the big jobs of a psychotherapist or clinician assessing somebody is to form an alliance with the patient enough to have the patient think that we too are on the same side. We're both on the same team trying to deal with a problem as opposed to you're going to lock me up or you're going to force me to do something I don't want to do. And that's a matter of how can you convey, how can I, the therapist, convey to the patient, I'm really interested in understanding your experience, what goes on for you and how you feel so that the two of us can try and alleviate whatever pain that's causing. And I think this is a very important therapeutic principle, which is about finding, finding the patient where they are. And I think for me that is, that is where the actual alliance takes place, as opposed to presuming that you know and then kind of speculating as to where it's at. It's, a, it's about finding the patient where they are. Well, that's a basic um, underlying important uh, fact of treatment is that you have to meet the patient where they are. Trying to tell people where they should be just doesn't work. People don't want to engage with anybody who cannot understand why, where I am and why I'm here. So that is very important in terms of the active listening because I think that, and I don't mean the act of listening, but active listening. Exactly. Active listening as opposed to passive listening. 
active listening is trying to find out what the person is saying and how she, she or he comes to say it. Right. And I, I think I often find use in, in the expression, help me to understand, where you as the professional are, are kind of asking the patient to explain to you in a way that you can understand. And, and, and then I think that also tends to contribute towards an alliance because now it's not a top-down, it's you're meeting each other as, as, as two human beings in a therapeutic context. Exactly. What it also does, it's organizing. If you ask me, help me understand this, then I start to think in an organizing way. And as I explain it to you, it organizes me. Very important that. And I hadn't really considered that, but yes, absolutely. So just kind of continuing on, on, on the theme of, of, of risk. What about circumstances, talking about relationships, finances? How, do, how does that feed into what can lead to an ultimate decision to, to, to end one's life? Well, there's four or five things that are very important here. The first is the feeling of um, loss. So people who lose something very important, if you've had experiences of dealing with this in the past and you've overcome it, you're better off if you've had a difficult time dealing with loss. And all of us have had some sort of loss. But um, loss can be very difficult, and loss can be uh, the death of an important person or a loss of relationship right. or a loss of uh, work or something important um, like um, uh, somebody who loses their capacity to enjoy art or something like that. But most often it's financial or love. Yes. Okay, so those are, those are risk factors which doesn't mean that everybody who loses their job or ends a relationship is necessarily at risk because I think there are obviously contextual uh, aspects. And so I wanted to touch on the issue of personality, the individual resilience and the uh, emotional stability or impulsivity. So looking at personality as a potential risk factor or determinant of, of, of an inclination towards an act such as suicide. Certain personalities are at much higher risk. Um, people who have personality disorders are people who have personality styles that uh, cause them difficulties during, usually during late adolescence, early adulthood, and it gets better as people mature into their 30s and 40s. Right. And one of the particular personalities that is associated with self-harming and with suicide as borderline personality disorders. Right. And borderline personality disorders, people who have difficulty with affective stability, they are um, energized and uh, hurt very easily. Separate from bipolar, it sometimes can be confused with bipolar, but it's quite separate. Yes. And uh, these people often self-harm as a way of containing their emotional experience and sometimes their self-harm can also be, can move further into uh, thinking of suicide and suicidal acts. So I think that's a very important issue because the, the act of self-harm is not in and of itself necessarily signifying suicidal intent, but certainly it should be something that alerts one to risk. Exactly. Yeah. For some people, self-harm is just that. They uh, feel better with yes. the pain. It makes their, stops what we call dissociation, which is a way of 
not being present in my body. It helps get me back into my body. Yes. For some people, um, the blood. And for some people, it's just the um, getting used to the, the action, the self-harming action that reorients them. And that's all they're interested in, as opposed to people who cut themselves as a prelude to going deeper and hurting and then wanting to kill themselves. Right. What about a history of prior attempts? Does that signify the potential risk? The more attempts you've made, the more likely you are to ultimately complete, or is there no real relationship in light of what we've just been discussing, where self-harm might be viewed as a suicide attempt when in fact it's just, what I say just, it is in fact self-harm. But in terms of suicide attempts, I mean, does that give one an indication of, 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 of ultimate risk? Yes, self-harm is one of our strongest predictors of eventual uh, successful suicide. The more time somebody tries to seriously kill themselves, ultimately they will succeed because we really can't stand in somebody's way if they are so determined. Also, because um, there's a way that people become used to it and they break a certain barrier that, oh, I can do it if I really want to. So having one suicide, serious suicide attempt uh, is something that we, we as the treatment uh, team need to watch out for in terms of predicting dangerousness. Having more than one raises it much more significantly. Right. What about gender? Is there a gender distribution that suggests that one gender might be more likely than the other, male versus female? I'm not sure in South Africa, but in the United States, elderly white males tend to be more lethal. Young uh, females, teenagers and 20s, seem to be more self-harming. So there is a distinction in terms of potential risk. Yeah. And I've also understood that there's a difference in terms of methodology. In, again, the, the data we have is for the United States. Elderly white men tend to have guns in this country. Just about everyone is armed, and guns seem to be a, play a very prominent role in men killing themselves, although women are more armed with guns nowadays than yes. previously. Right. Women tend to be self-poisoning, overdosing, and cutting. Okay, so the one thing we mentioned earlier was prior or current contact with a with a professional and I, I think it's often very surprising for for people to discover how recently a person who has completed a suicide actually had contact with a professional what would your comments be on that well i know the data says that but it's um it really depends on the kind of contact right i know for me personally that people say, how can you take on such difficult treatments of suicidal patients? For me personally, once somebody's decided to engage in therapy, the risk drops dramatically. They're, they're going to give it a chance. And so they're not uh, intent on hurting themselves right now. For people who haven't decided to engage or people who um, your loved one says you're looking like you're uh, going after knives and you might be thinking of harming yourself, those people are at high risk and they might be brought to see somebody 
And they could say, no, I was just looking. It really doesn't mean anything. And that's not a full evaluation. So they might have some contact, but it really depends on the kind of evaluation prior to the suicide. I think you used a key term there, which is engagement. And I, th- I think the term engagement really means that the, the person coming to see you as a professional is really connecting with the process as opposed to simply seeing you as a matter of course. There's something right. much, much more happening. Would, would that be reasonable? Yeah, I think you're right there. Absolutely. So here's a, here's a question which is, which is maybe a, a difficult one to answer because we might never really know the answer to it. Can suicide ever be rational? where somebody takes a reasoned decision based on their assessment of their life circumstances? Because, you know, one does read about rational suicide. Um, Is there that moment of lucidity just before where everything kind of just settles for the individual and they then take that decision having assessed their life, which might be from a distorted perspective, but there's a calmness about it? Well, people do become calm once they've taken their decision, but that doesn't mean that they're thinking clearly. Uh, Rational suicide often refers to people with uh, life-threatening illnesses like cancer or uh, MS or something like that, and they feel that there is no hope. And therefore, they should uh, either take their life or ask somebody to help them taking their life because... um, There is no hope for any improvement. My own experience is that people who become suicidal have distorted thinking. Right. In the the, uh, build-up to the final decision, there is – people will often say, well, my my family will be better off without me. Mm. Now, that's a distortion that's completely wrong, and they say um, they'll, they'll get over it. And uh, I'd be interested to hear from Marissa, but my experience talking to survivors is people do not get over it. Right. Survivors do not get over it, especially young kids whose parents do a suicide and say, oh, they'll, they're young, they'll get over it. They don't. They just don't. It stays with them. Why did this happen? It's just too painful. Yes, they move on in their lives, but it's a pain that doesn't go away. So there's this distortion I find in people uh, finally killing themselves that is not rational. So even where a decision has been taken, which one might, because from a personal uh, anecdote, um, I had a patient and I encountered the family sometime after the patient had indeed committed suicide. And what was, what emerged in the discussion was that on the day when it happened, they had been home to visit the family and the family had, found them in remarkably good spirits. And their assumption was things are going well. This is great. Only to discover later what had transpired. And when they went to the place where they stayed, everything was perfectly organized. All the letters had been written. All the financial affairs had been taken care of. There was nothing left for anybody to to sift through Everything had been organized, which suggested a very clear decision and almost a, 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 a rationality. And so that's really the question I'm, I'm, I'm asking. Is it ever possible? But I think what I'm hearing you say, Mark, is that, well, it may appear so, but the truth of the matter is the reasoning that leads to the decision is in itself faulty. 
as in people who are better off without me, etc. Right. We, we need to separate obsessionality from nationality. Okay. Now, the patient you're describing sounds obsessional. I need everything to be absolutely clean and taken care of, everything in its right place and me in its right place, which is perverse because they're going to be dead. And so there, there is not everything in its right place, but there's a, a distortion in that I can put everything in its right place and my death will be clean. Right. And yet I can, uh, without you having said so, I can expect that the family was devastated, especially feeling uh, betrayed by this person who they saw just hours before he went on to act like this. Absolutely. So I'm going to ask you one final question before I move to Mariska. There is a, I, I can remember there was a kind of a stereotype, and, and, and I think it was a more prejudicial one, that suicide is a cowardly act or a selfish act. How would you, how would you respond to, to, to those kind of descriptors? I don't think it's cowardly and I don't think it's selfish. It's a psychiatric act oh. of people who are desperate. The one thing we know about people who kill themselves is that most of them have depression, almost all of them. And just about all of them feel desperate. It's a desperation of, I'm in such distress and something has to change. And that goes along with the distortion in thinking that I, I think happens with just about all people who, who kill themselves too. And it's just, um, this is the act that people follow without uh, thinking I'm being a coward or I'm being a hero. Yes. It's just it's psychiatric um, behavior. Right. My personal view is in accordance with, with yours, but these are things that you, you hear, and I think it's important just to dispel them and, and, and put them in perspective. Now, Mariska, I'm going to turn to you. You've been listening patiently. Yes. Um, you've got personal experience of such loss, which brought you to working with Compassionate Friends here in yes. Johannesburg. Would you share your experience with us and also tell us about the work that you do at, at, at Compassionate Friends? Yes, uh, I started out um, at Compassionate Friends as a bereaved parent um, after my son died. Um, and incidentally, this this year, it's 10 years ago that, that we lost him. Okay. Um, he was always what I called my, since he was small, I called him my sunshine child. So he was always smiling, always joking, always um, pranking people. We could never imagine that that is the way that he would live life. Um, he went after school, he went on to study, um, but he didn't finish his studies. He said he lost interest. And then he went and he worked on cruise ships as, as a photographer. And he did uh, three different contracts over three years at, on the cruise ships. Um the, the life on the cruise ships, although it sounds very exciting, it's also very hard. It, they work long hours, mm-hmm. and depending on the people they work with, there, there's lots of um, incidents that happen that someone like my son, I can imagine, was they haven't been used to um, some things that he had to deal with. Uh, I don't think he really ever discussed it with us, but... In hindsight and looking back and finding things about him later on, mm. we realized that it wasn't the fantasy life that everybody thinks it is. Right. Um, 
what happened is he met a girl, a Chinese girl, on on his last cruise that he was on. Um, fell in love with her. They decided together to to end the contract early. Uh, she went back to China. He came back home. He said he couldn't wait to back uh, to come back home because he was missing us, mm. which afterwards didn't make sense to me. If he was missing us, why did he leave us? Mm. Um, but then he missed her so much, and he pleaded with me to go to China and go and visit her. Okay. I said to him, "But why waste your money uh, traveling? You don't have a job at the moment. Um, rather spend your money, maybe uh, do a course or something." And he said, "No." And he, and it sounded quite desperate. He said, "If I don't go now, I won't make it." So Which, that was that was the first time he'd he'd made that kind of statement to you. To, towards me, but me never expecting anything like that. I didn't oh. see it for what he probably meant it to be. Okay. So we let him go. Um, he okay. uh, he went for. Um, he went to China. He went to China for about a month. I toured through. China had a lovely time. They saw all the interesting places in China, and then my daughter was going to get married um, that December 2011. Um, so she came back with him to attend the wedding. So very, everything very nice. She came to us. We met her. Um, enjoyed being with her. He enjoyed having her there. We went to the wedding. It was all and and incidentally, then at the wedding, of course, he. Saw all the family that he hadn't seen for a long time. So afterwards, I was thinking it's almost like he went there to say goodbye to everybody. Is that what you thought afterwards? Afterwards, every but at the time, that's not no. That everything seemed so normal. He did right. the video on her at her wedding. Of course, because he was photographer. Yes, right. And he seemed happy. Um, then, just after the wedding, the, the next year in January was his twenty-fifth birthday. Uh, we still had a party for him uh, the Saturday before his birthday, and he was like, I think Mark, you said, in, or, or I don't know, one of you said he was in good spirits. He he was joking, he was having fun, he was um, actually making a joke and saying that he would uh, consider having a birthday as a career because he's making so much money out of it, right. and um, everything was fine. The Monday, oh yes, he was also, he was invited, um, a photographer um, that went on a cruise on one of the ships. Um, when he saw him working on the ship, he actually invited him when he came back to South Africa to come for an interview and maybe offer him a job okay. through that. So the uh, the, the Wednesday, the, uh, sorry, the, the Wednesday after the party, his, his birthday was on the Wednesday before the party, and right. then exactly a week later, the Wednesday after the party, he was going to go for this interview okay. with with the photographer. Um, we noticed that he seemed, since he came home and since his girlfriend, after the wedding, she went back to China, so he seemed a bit down, but we knew that he missed her a lot. He Skyped with her a lot. He spent a lot of time in his room. Talking to her, we assumed um, He didn't seem to eat very well He would come and eat and quickly take his plate to the kitchen And just disappear back into his room So he became a little bit more isolated? Yes, he did And and also his um, New Year's Eve 
we were surprised that he didn't go out with his friends. And afterwards, his friends told us that he said, uh, they asked him and he said, no, I'm listening to depressing music. I'm not coming with you. Mm-hmm. We didn't know that at the time. Right. So there, there were signs of depression, but firstly, we didn't see all of it. Right. And secondly, we never imagined that because he, there was no, he was never diagnosed with anything. Right. He didn't seem depressed otherwise. Right. We just put it down to him missing his girlfriend. Right. Obviously not having a job yet and trying to find a job. And then also his two best friends left the one went to university uh, in Salenbosch, which is far away. And his other friend got a job also quite far away. So they have sort of left his immediate life. And um, the Wednesday was was going to go for this interview. Um, I got home after work. Quite excited to hear because I, I was sure he was going to get this job. Yes. Um, he used to come down to carry my laptop uh, case for me, but he didn't do it that day. So I went, um, I went to the front door. I rang the bell so he could come and open for me. He didn't do that. Then I thought maybe he was visiting his friend across the street, um, our neighbor's son. Um, opened the door. It was quiet inside. Um, I walked up the, uh, the stairs to the, through the passage, I knocked on his door because the door was closed and he didn't open so I thought I must be across the street but I opened the door got a very strange smell and as I walked in I saw his feet next to his bed and I I thought why, why is he sleeping next to his bed, why is he not on his bed right. and as I walked around the corner of the bed I realised that he had shot himself um it's it's a strange feeling because something takes over you, not yourself anymore. Um, I always call it you, you go on autopilot. So I didn't – the first thing I said, I just said, why, Uri, why? Yeah. And then I, I almost calmly w- walked to my bedroom, put down my stuff, went back to his room. I thought I should probably check whether he's still alive. Yes. I wanted to fill in his neck, but there, there was too much blood, so I, I felt his pulse, and I realized there's nothing there. Um, and then I, I said to him, it's, it's strange because I said to myself, this is real. You'll have to accept it. It's never going to change, and I don't know where that came from. So that was in the moment? In that moment, and I think that really helped me a lot to realize that this is real. This is happening to us now. So I quickly went to... Uh, the bedroom, got my cell phone, found my husband, he was at work, and I said to him, you have to come home. And he said, why? Because he's busy working. And I said, Ulrich is dead. He shot himself. Actually, no, I didn't say he's dead at first. I said he, he shot himself, and then he asked, is he still alive? And I said, no. Um, and then I said to him, will, will you call the ambulance? And he said, yes, he will do that. Um but then I, I couldn't wait, so I, I also phoned the emergency number and they said they'll send someone. And I was, I was like very, I was shivering, yes. but, but I knew I, there were things that I had to do. And quite by mistake, I found my best friend. I don't, still don't know how that happened. I must have pressed a number somewhere on my phone and she phoned me back and she said to me, 
Ty, is everything okay? And I said, no. She said, why? But, and I said, no. Ulrich shot himself. And same question, is he still alive? No, he's not. And I spoke to her for a while. It's strange, I, I wasn't crying or anything. At, I think I was in such shock that yes. th- there was no real emotion there, just the shock. And I went and I waited at the front door and they, then everybody started arriving. They sent two fire trucks, I don't know why. They sent an ambulance. Uh, paramedics came, police came. Um, by the time my husband got home, everybody was there already. The paramedics had already, they went into the room and they came back and they just shook their heads. But I knew, I, I knew there was no life there anymore. And um, by the time my husband got home, the police was actually keeping him from going in, into my son's room. You know, they were standing in the doorway. They allowed him to peep inside, but he couldn't go in. And then it was all the things for the they, they almost make you feel like a criminal because they're asking you all these questions. Where were you? What were you doing? And was, that's their work. They, they have to do it, yes. And then um, my son's body was... But then, then we realized, um, afterwards we realized that he never went for that interview because the time that he should have been at the interview, we, we got a slip in his bedroom he was at the post office and he was sending his girlfriend a package in China. So he he didn't go for that interview. Um, I didn't notice when I first went into this room. I thought he didn't leave a note, but um, I, I can't remember. One of the paramedics or the policeman came to me. He said to me, did you see there's a letter? And I said, no, I didn't, because I was so focused on him on the floor. Apparently it was stuck to the wall. So he gave me the letter, and we read it. The, the police wanted to take it as evidence. Um, so we asked if we could make a scan of it, because we knew we probably wouldn't get it back, and I wanted to, to read it properly later on as well. And that's where, from what both of you have said, there's so many touch points on um, what he said in that letter. He, he said that it was only a choice he said that he wasn't depressed, which I believed at that time because I wanted to believe it. But um, later on, I realized he, there, there was depress- depression. There. Um, he didn't realize it himself. But he did say he wasn't depressed. He said it's just a choice. Um, he said he had such a wonderful time doing these cruises, seeing the world, um, having very good friends, made good friends on the the cruises and also finding the love of his life and he couldn't foresee that life going forward could be any better than this and he said he wasn't willing to be a slave to society and that that phrase always sticks in my head what do you think he meant by that i think he he didn't want to um he also said life is hard and you have to battle to get through it Mm. so I think just the fact that he didn't have a job, he had to find a job, work hard, not have this nice life that he that he was used to for the past three years. Um, and he just didn't see a future for himself. And something that I didn't disagree with, which he also mentioned, is he, he said, I've disappointed so many people. Right. So he, and he had some kind of guilt. 
probably because he didn't uh, finish his studies. Right. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, the, he, he wrote that letter because he said he still at that stage had a heart and he had to give people some answers. It gave us some answers, but it also created a bit of confusion about yes. what he said and why he said it. So, I mean, there's a lot in what you've said which echoes a lot of what Mark and I have, yes. have discussed. And I mean, obviously, a profoundly disturbing, upsetting experience, such a, such a loss as you've, as you've described. Um, I suppose the question really that I was going to ask of, 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 of Mark and uh, what about the survivors? I mean, this is, this is really the essence of what we need to get to. And, and I think Mariska has, has shared of her experience in, in, in very specific detail. Mark, your, your, your comments? Well, Mariska, let me first say I'm so sorry. That's just a terrible, terrible loss. Thank you. And thank you for sharing it. I know how painful it is. And unfortunately, so many people have stories like that, survivors who have lost somebody, and um, you're just left with questions. There are no answers. Why, why, why? Yeah, that's a big question. And, and um, uh, Christopher, I don't know if I'm the right person to ask. I think Mariska might be the, the person yes. to ask about what provides, the what helps you to move on after such a terrible loss. In, in our field, we think um, talking, being understood, feeling like somebody else knows what I've gone through. That can help. But it's very hard to find someone who's been through exactly the same, especially when people say, oh, I know exactly what you've gone through, and theirs is different. So um, I think um, feeling some uh, compassion from others who have had similar losses might help. But uh, basically there's just grief and pain, and it's very hard to move on. And then for some people there's an increased risk of them feeling uh, I can't go on either, and I, I want to kill myself. So we have to watch out in survivors for the pain that they're going through. I think so. Um, Mariska, well, let me ask you directly some of the questions that I might have asked Mark. I mean, what, aside from the obvious grief, and I, I think we appreciate that, and, and in fact, as you described what you'd encountered and, and, and what you'd been through, it was very profound for, for me just to, to listen did you experience, and this is maybe a difficult question, but in terms of your feelings, was there guilt? Was there anger? Did you blame yourself? What 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 were some of the things that you experienced? I'm I'm just using those words. Mm. But let me hear from you. The, those are things that are quite common, and with the the people that I'm dealing with now, um, anger, guilt, it's all there. Right. For some reason, I I didn't experience that. I, I didn't feel guilty because I knew we loved him as much as we could and we gave him, helped him as much as we could. So I didn't feel guilt. Um, I didn't really feel angry. I felt sorry for him that he was feeling so low that that was his choice and his option of getting out of life. So I, I didn't feel that anger. Um, I, I was not a... a Casebook case. In, right. Um, 
what I, I did feel and and what Mark said is at at one stage I didn't want to live very soon after. Okay. And I think and I started getting depressed. Right. And I was but I, I didn't want to kill myself. I wanted to a bus to drive over me or I wanted to get cancer. I wanted it to be an accident, but right. I didn't want to be there anymore. Yes. And as you learn to cope with what's happened, um, that, that feeling, those feelings disappeared, but it was there for a long time. Right. It, it was, um, I, I wanted to die, but I didn't want to die. Yes. And I knew where it was coming from. Um, but it was still there. And I find it with a lot of the parents that, that I'm talking to as well. They've gone through a stage where they felt they didn't want to live anymore. Right. So from from my side, not in a professional, uh, it's not a professional opinion, but from what I see, it happens quite often that people get those feelings. But you didn't act on it. So you obviously had reasons to keep going, maybe thinking if something were to happen to me, so be it. I would not yes. oppose it, but you kept going. Yes, because I still had my daughter. Right. And my daughter was going through the same loss as I did. And also my parents, elderly parents, oh, I couldn't let them go through that again. Right. Um, and then my husband, of course, was, was yes. there. So my closest loved ones, I think, kept me from acting on, on those feelings. Yes. That's very important. You know, as you as you were describing what, what you saw, it seemed to me that it's still something that is very real for you in terms of what you saw now, today, as we sit here. Um, you mean when I found myself? When, when you walked into the room. Um, other than, than a lot of people that I've spoken to, um, after it happened, I tried to, at night when I went to bed, I tried to recall that image of my son and what I saw. It wasn't terrible. It wasn't bad. And I'm glad I saw it because if I had to imagine that, yes. it would have been much worse in my head than actually seeing it. He, he took care of um, what he did in the, the best way that he could. Right. Um, he actually thought about it before he did it. And he, and, and that's, that's quite comforting that he was thinking of us right. before he went to that terrible step to end his life um so i tried to to see it in my mind's eye for some reason mm. which afterwards i learned it's it's a way of, to get people to any trauma to to get through that well i think trauma was the word that i wanted to use because i think it is a traumatic exposure yes and i can imagine how that lives with you and comes back at you yes but it, it's not. It's not like it's recurring. I, if someone asks me, I can explain to them what I what I saw. Right. I can't see it in my mind's eye anymore. Okay. But I can still explain it, and I think that also helped me um, because it it could have um, gone into a post traumatic depression or, or correct. That's uh, that's that's what I was thinking of. Post-traumatic stress disorder yes. because you've obviously experienced profoundly traumatic events. But fortunately, I never had a problem with that. Okay. Um, a lot of people do that, however, and I think that's with, when they need people like um, you and Mark to help them 
through working through the, uh, what whatever they've experienced. Right. So I mean, that is a Mark just bringing you in here. I mean, that is the possibility for survivors to themselves develop psychiatric problems as a consequence of the suicide. Right. So um, talking with a um, various forms of engaging with others can help survivors. Right. There's some evidence that they needed more over two, after two or three years as opposed to immediately following the huge loss, but that support groups can be helpful and individually therapy can be helpful. I would say find whatever is helpful, whatever you find personally helpful, whether it's a peer support groups or with a professional. But certainly you would concur that there is a potential risk for survivors in terms of developing their own issues if they don't already have them? Oh, absolutely. And I think Mariska makes a nice um, distinction. Some people do develop post-traumatic stress disorder and have symptoms of PTSD, and some people don't. And we're not very good at distinguishing who and why, but there is a risk. And for some uh, nightmares, dissociation, increased anxiety, non being non-functional would be symptoms of PTSD. And for others, it's just sadness, grief, maybe depression, thoughts of wishing to die, things like that. And they go on for a very long time, very painful, and uh, feeling, who can understand me? How, how can this have happened? So this is where I want to come to the support group, Mariska, because yes. obviously there's a power in sharing. Definitely. And, um, dealing with feelings, not to feel isolated, and maybe based on what Mark and I were discussing now, identifying those who might be at risk and who might need onward referrals. Mm-hmm. So what would you say in terms of what your experience has been of, 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 of working as a, as a facilitator and as you explained to me um, offline before we started recording, you don't work alone in the group. So maybe you'd like to give me just a little bit of background about how the group process works and maybe looking at some of the issues that I've mentioned here. Yes. Um, we've, we found that the group, and, and specifically we, we separated the, the suicide grief support group from the general group at Compassionate Friends because Compassionate Friends um, – support parents who's lost children in any way at any age um, doesn't matter but the suicide uh, support group as as a different um, level to it and that is the stigma associated with suicide yes and people are not very um, that they don't really want to talk about it in front of parents who's lost babies or the children in car accidents or of illness it's there's that extra layer of of grief that they have to deal with uh stigma from other people and that's quite rampant i can almost say um, in today's life still right uh, that suicide is stigmatized and that's where it comes in where people say it's it's um they were selfish or they were cowardly um so in in this specific suicide support group We've all been through the same thing. We've been there. We've had different experiences. We can't say that 
I know what you're going through because you don't. People are different. I've had different experiences. But we've all been there in some way or another. And we're all trying to deal with it and going forward with our lives. So what is good about the group? And uh, sorry, let me just explain. We we start the group um, with introductions usually. Yes. Everybody tells a little bit about themselves, their experience and their child. And as much as they want to share. Mm. If they don't want to, they can just sit and listen so they don't have to talk. Um, we just want them to feel comfortable. Mm. And what usually happens is as people start talking, others come in and say, yes, me too. Uh, that happened to me too. Or I can, I can imagine what, what you are feeling because I've been there. Right. Some are further along than others. So from their experience and what they've done to help them, that is very helpful to the to the new appearance who come into the group. Um, I was also part of of the, the group early on, seven months after my son died. I joined the group, um, and that was very helpful to me. And eventually I went and attended the group because I wanted to go and help the parents who came after me. Right. And that's how I ended up um, working with, with the people at Compassionate Friends. Now, you don't work alone, right, in the group? You run it in yes. conjunction with another person? Yes. Uh, one of the, the mothers who came to, uh, to when um, I still had another lady, an older lady with me in the group. She was actually my mentor at uh, Compassionate Friends. And this lady started attending um, our group, and she told me that she was a psychologist. Mm-hmm. Um, and But she came for her own grief. Right. And later on, she offered to to come, become involved at Compassionate Friends. She's also doing a one-on-one counseling right. at Compassionate Friends. And she uh, facilitates the group with me, which is very nice because she's got that psychological the, the, um, background, yes. which I don't particularly have. Right. And she can come in from a different angle that I can when, the, when people are – talking in the group and say, but what about this? Or often things that I didn't even think of. And I think it's, it's actually a very good combination because she's, she's a bereaved parent. She's got that experience, but she's also got the psychological background. Right. So it works well between the two. Yes. Tell me something. I mean, I don't know how often you run the group, but clearly it's been a decade now since your son passed Mm. and you keep going back in to facilitate and to hear stories, how does that how does that impact upon you? Um, I've I've pretty well I think worked through my grief. Uh, um, it doesn't mean it's not there at all anymore. It I don't think it ever goes away. Sure. But you through the years and through through time you learn to deal with it, how to to live with it. Um, I've seen a very nice image where they show the grief and as a as a ball in a bottle the the ball doesn't get smaller the bottle gets bigger because your life around the grief grows so the grief actually stays the same stays the same you just learn how to live with it um for me i'm fine i can talk about anything um I won't become emotional talking about it. And 
I actually started three three weeks after my son died. I I learned of someone who lost her son to suicide, and I contacted her. And from then on, I I became more and more involved um, with people who lost their children, just contacting them, talking to them, and talking. Uh, in my experience, is the best thing that people can do. Yes, getting it out. Uh, to somebody who understands, to, some, to somebody who won't judge them or their child. Right. Um, because judgment um, is, is a big fear as well. Understood. People do judge. Why did your child take his own life? Mm-hmm. Um, just something else that I've, I don't want to judge, but I've realized that you are still talking about committing suicide. Yes. In the, that uh, area, most people don't like that right. because it's, Reminds me them of committing a crime, right? So we rather talk about taking their own life or dying by suicide, which I think is very important um, in terms of the language we use. Yes, and in fact, I'd come across a piece written by Lizette Robbie for the South African Medical yes. Association publication Insider, and she speaks more about died of depression. Yes. So she's had a very strong campaign. She is to, a very strong com- campaigner. Yes, and I think it's 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 interesting because in Afrikaans, there's self-mort. Yes, and, and self-do it. To self-do it. Yes, and I think that that's quite a profound shift. So from murdering oneself to to exactly. self-death or, or yes. dying of, of 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 suicide. So she's been a very big proponent yes. for the use of language and 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 for destigmatizing suicide. So and, I can relate to. What you're saying? She was actually one of the people who helped me. Um, she knew someone who also lost a child to suicide. Who um, uh, this person is my mother's cousin, right. and my my mother's cousin told Lizette about me. And she wrote the first letter I received was from Lizette okay. to say, "I've been through the same thing. We can talk." And and she's been very important in my life, starting out on this road. Um, and she, she's very involved. Also, things that people do for their children in honor of their children, right. um, doing hikes um, and putting it out there and making people aware, which is also very important because if you haven't been through it, you're not really aware how often it happens. Yes. And it's happening more and more because life is difficult, and the, the, especially the younger people, yes. they don't know how to deal with it. So I wanted to just change direction briefly as we're coming to the end. Mark, I wanted to ask you about the treating professional and how they experience the loss of a patient in this way, because I know there can be all kinds of feelings. In, in your experience, what have you encountered? Well, it's similar to survivors who are loved ones, but then more complicated because we're not loved ones. So uh, therapists and doctors who lose a patient to suicide um, feel that uh, they'll be judged. So there's back to that issue of stigmatism and shame and also judge themselves. Maybe I did something wrong. It must have been something that I did. So it's complicated and it's further complicated by... Um, we don't have a good um, method. Uh, if if my wife kills herself, then we have a funeral, we have a 
a way of going to to grieve. If my patient kills herself, do I go to the funeral? Will I be welcome? Will I be blamed? Where do I fit in in the grieving process? So it's complicated, and I also worry about what will the hospital say about me and what I've done, will they understand? So these issues of shame and stigma and guilt and confusion and complicated bereavement hit the therapist hard. I just wanted to, in closing, just getting to the end, uh, Sean Bowman, South African psychiatrist, uh, he wrote a book called Madness, Stories of Uncertainty and Hope, and he's got a chapter entitled uh, Suicide and Its Aftermath, and he describes um, certain of his clinical experiences as a psychiatrist dealing with suicide and attempted suicide. And in the closing words of the chapter, he mentions remaining haunted by his experiences. And, and I just mm. thought that that is such a, a powerful uh, descriptor of, of, of how one can and, 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 and might feel as a professional and certainly as a, as a parent or a, or a loved one. So Mark and Mariska, I really want to thank you for taking the time to, to, to join us. I mean, I know it's not an easy topic of discussion, but I think it's a very important one, given some of the things yeah. you said, Mariska, and, and I'm sure Mark would concur about how it is not uncommon in our young population mm -hmm. specifically, and it's obviously a very, very powerful and uh, traumatic event. So, again, just to to thank you. Um, as I said, we, we don't avoid it because it's unsettling. I think we have to deal with, with certain of these realities. And I, I just want to leave the audience with a few words. Apparently attributed to Bob Marley, but maybe not. But I like the words, and it goes like this. You never know how strong you are until being strong is your only choice. So remember, there is no health without mental health. And until next time, I'm Professor Christopher Paul Sabo, and I'm becoming a bit emotional. <laughs> you can keep that in if you want, because it's how I'm feeling. Thank you for the opportunity. No, thank you for sharing. And this is Beyond Madness in proud association with Adcock Ingram, OTC, sponsors of Brave. Thank you.